Hello and welcome. Good morning, everybody. This is the New Standard Podcast. I am the solo host today. My name is Neil Kulong. I am usually joined by the vivacious and ever-loving Lance Williams. He is, unfortunately, again, out on assignment. Parts unknown this time. It's a secret uh, covert mission that we are not allowed to know any more about, but we pray for his safety. In his absence, though, we are going to talk about the Steelers, the one in four sinking through the waters of the NFL season as if an anchor is tied to their feet, Pittsburgh Steelers. Yes, this is historic times for Pittsburgh, considering not just their record, but the the depths of how bad they have been to this point. We don't pull any punches in this show. We're going to tell to you how it is. There are reasons for optimism. They're just not all that strong where we sit. That That's just the reality. And it's a reality that was echoed by Steelers coach Mike Tomlin in his press conference uh, often on Tuesday, where he basically said, um, I'm going to paraphrase it, to fit this into context. We didn't dig into this hole in one day. It's going to take more than one day to get out. It's going to take more than one week. It's going to take more than probably half the season if they're going to dig out. It is most likely not going to be this weekend as the Pittsburgh Steelers take on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I've got Luke Easterling, the editor of Bucks Wire and Draft Wire, incidentally, on the USA Today Sports Media Group NFL Wire Network. He's going to come on here in a little bit. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the state of the Buccaneers, a team that probably hasn't lived up to what we all thought that they would be heading into this season. I don't know if the Steelers are or are not the team we thought they would be. I'm not overly surprised by this. I might be a little surprised by 38-3 to against Buffalo. I'm not entirely surprised by 552 yards of offense, 54 plays run and 38 points, which has to be among the most efficient games an NFL team has had in the high-scoring era, even, of the NFL. Massive performance, one that earned... Bills quarterback Josh Allen, AFC Offensive Player of the Week. That was named today, Wednesday. I should probably point that out as well. We're coming at you on uh, Wednesday, October 12th, the morning of. This is one day after Mike Tomlin's press conference and the day the Steelers will begin practice, <clears throat> practice in order to get ready for the Buccaneers, a team that the Steelers have not played uh, consistently well, but have gotten a few routes in the past just due to kind of the up-and-down nature of the Bucks of note in this game. Bucks offensive coordinator, Byron Leftwich, some might remember him, as backup quarterback extraordinaire for the Steelers back when the Steelers um, did not give up 38 points in 54 plays and lose 38-3. Byron Leftwich was a, thought, a, a, a reasonably sought-after head coaching hire and uh, could be again this coming offseason. We could get into the Mike Tomlin coaching tree. I'm not sure if that's worth it right now, but um, Steelers don't get any credit at all for Byron Leftwich. Um, we won't get into that considering uh, Byron Leftwich came up through former Steelers offensive coordinator Bruce Arians, another coach the Steelers don't get any credit for. Again, I'm Neil Kulong. I am the host of the New Standard Podcast, Flying Solo. Today, we are without Lance Williams here on Wednesday morning. 
We're going to talk about the Steelers, so please hit us up in the comments. When Luke comes on, we're going to talk about um, all things Buccaneers. And after reviewing Tampa Bay to this point this season, you're looking at a team that in a lot of ways is underachieving. And if you look at the Steelers for what they have coming up, now we touted the four-game streak the Steelers had in front of them before the Buffalo game as a brutal stretch that honestly last week at this time I would have bet immediately they're going to go 0-4. That certainly is on the table. <laughs> We're not taking that off the table yet, but the Bucks are not exactly playing the way that you think that they would. The Dolphins are having a tough time keeping an NFL-ready quarterback on the field. And we're not exactly sure the direction of either of those teams. Philadelphia, on the other hand, is the last remaining uh, unbeaten team in the NFL. Uh, they're playing good football. That's going to be a tough game. But I, we'll say this. One thing I wanted to bring up here, the Steelers, um, one of the worst losses I think that, that we would agree that we saw the Steelers play, the Steelers have in this era, uh, in the Tomlin era, really, of, of their history. I think it was 55 or, no, it was 57-31 to the Patriots in 2013. 2013 um, was a bad Steelers team, certainly at the beginning of that season. We did not have high expectations for them. Within the first eight plays, they lost their all-pro center, Marquise Pouncey, to a knee injury. He was out for the year. By the third quarter, they lost veteran linebacker Larry Foote, who might not have been an all-pro level player, but they didn't have any depth behind Foote at all. Um, they had to play then-rookie, six-round draft pick Vince Williams, who even by his own words was a, a fish out of water that season to the point where they had to get they had to take him off the field completely on passing downs. Um, <clears throat> and they moved strong safety Troy Polamalu down to the box uh, to help handle inside stuff. Troy got beaten up. He had a, a, a big year, but that defense was rough for the first half of that season. Some might remember that as the year Mike Adams' career ended as Jared Allen um, obliterated him when they were playing in London. 0-4 start to that team. 2-6 start to that team. And they won six of their last eight games when they finally figured everything out and put it all together. The reason I bring that up, we wonder if that's not the Steelers' fate to some degree this year. I'm not saying that that is going to happen, but we'll go back and forth all day on Mike Tomlin's place among coaches in the current game, during his era, what he has done, what he hasn't done. We can go back and forth on that. It's hard to argue that he has not been reasonably successful, certainly in comparison to his peers. But you also have to concede that he's left some on the field, and we are not looking at a product that has really improved a whole lot over the last three years. When roster depth became a problem, um, they're, they're building up a few players, not enough to overcome a lot of the problems they have right now. How much do we want to put on Mike Tomlin? How much do we want to say this is coaching, um, it's roster management, it's a lack of a quarterback. It, it, there, there are a lot of things that are contributing to this. One thing, though, that is impossible for us to deny as far as Tomlin is concerned, 
I think his highest and best trait is he gets more out of under-talented rosters than anybody else in the league. What he's done in the past with talented rosters, another story. But that 2013 team wasn't all that good going into the season, and it lost some key players early. Um, He was able to work them to the point where even at the end of the year, these guys still wanted to run through a wall for them. And if you recall, they started two and six, and they came an overtime loss um, by a Chiefs team that benched all of, the, all of its starters in week six, week 17 uh, away from the playoffs. It, it, back and forth game in overtime, one of the most exciting games of the year, just because it was, it was so close for the Steelers to have qualified for the playoffs after a, a, a horrendous start to that season. Tomlin got that team right. And to be honest, they were playing good football. Um, you might recall the Chargers won their first game in the playoffs that year. The Chargers were able to advance with the 8-8 eight and eight record in the AFC, which um, might not seem all that great, but it really goes to show playoff football is about how, you're, how you are going into the game, not where you were back in weeks one through six. The Steelers got a lot better. Can the Steelers do that again? Are they going to be able to get over this? Some key factors to that. The quarterback change. We reviewed Kenny Pickett, Lance and I did, um, with many of you commenting along here on the New Standard podcast, that Pickett's performance wasn't that bad. I think looking at it again, I saw probably a few more negatives than uh, I might have pointed out after, after the game. Considering he's a rookie, taken 20th overall on a an objectively bad offense to go into among the best defensive teams in the game in their stadium, which is probably the strongest home field advantage in in the NFL for him to do what he did was pretty impressive. He made some mistakes. He missed a few things. That interception just wasn't a good decision. I'm not sure what he was trying to do with that. Uh, Two weeks in a row, he's made a pretty poor decision uh, throwing the ball to the outside. Um, we have fair concerns about uh, development in that regard. It's not that we can only highlight one thing or we can only worry about this particular uh, moment in time. The overall effect of what Pickett did, which is agnostic to the final score, okay? One individual player can't be held accountable to the entire finan- to the, the entire final score. The issue with that is, in in my opinion, if you want to do that, what you need to do is line up everybody. I feel Chase Claypool had perhaps his worst game as a pro, and that includes a game he had two penalties and delayed uh, a two-minute drive celebrating a first down. I think he was worse in this game. Deontay Johnson had an uncharacteristically bad game. Dropped a couple balls. Um, one of them should have been intercepted. Uh, fortunately for the Steelers, it wasn't, but it, not that it matters in the end. Anyway, he dropped a, a, a key fourth down pass that was inside the five-yard line, a drive that they clearly would have gotten points on um, if they were able to convert that, and they should have. It was a good throw. It would have been a, a, a good catch. He didn't hang on to it. He didn't secure it. He didn't bring it all the way down with him. Your quarterback is not going to lead to points if guys are dropping passes. I mean, it, it, it's as simple as that. Um from a protection standpoint, 
I felt Dan Moore really let down uh, the, the the group effort overall. They're really having a problem with him this season. I, I think the offensive line has done uh, for for who they are, for what they are, for what we could have expected from them. I think Dan Moore uh, is holding back a unit that could be, frankly, surprisingly average. You know, we we put them way lower than average after that Jacksonville preseason game. We had no faith this team was going to compete uh, at anything that looked like an average level. They've done pretty well. I, I I like the progress that we're seeing among that group. And hats off to uh, Pat Meyer, the offensive line coach, Matt Canada, the offensive coordinator. They're getting something out of the offensive line, but Dan Moore is going to continue to be a problem. They're not going to be able to address that. They're not going to be able to do a whole lot about that except rise to average. And that might be the team's motto for the rest of the year, to be honest with you. It, it's it's This team was not nearly as talented as fans made them out to be. I said this all offseason. They're not nearly as good as you think that they are. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but that that's the reality. Najee Harris is another problem uh, with the offense right now. I think it's clear. Uh, he's been given every opportunity to, to show us otherwise. There is some combination and the weight of these two things you can distribute on your own. You, you get to decide here on the new standard podcast. You can figure out how you want to weigh this uh, in, in whatever way you want. There is clearly a, phys- a physical issue that Harris has. We know about the Liz Frank injury. And there is a problem in terms of his vision slash confidence. I'm going to put those two things together, one being physical, one being mental. But I'm putting them together because... He's not hitting the holes or the gaps, lanes, whatever you want to call them, that are in front of him. Now, I'm not saying that they're five miles wide and they they shouldn't be seen as that. He is not getting there. I think that's the best way to put it. I, I had a couple conversations with people that know this game very well. They know personnel. They agreed with the idea that it, overall, let, let's break it down like this. You guys probably remember Trent Richardson. Busted Brown's first round draft pick. I think he was a fourth overall. They traded up with Minnesota to, to draft a running back. Um, and he was junk. He really was. Um, I, I don't even with, well, with Brown's picks, I guess I don't care so much. But you you don't want to see a guy come in and just get completely embarrassed. And that was Trent Richardson's career. It makes me wonder if there isn't something to the idea that what Najee Harris saw as a lane at Alabama was probably much more obvious. You're looking at something that's five yards wide at the college level. He obviously knows he's not going to get that in the NFL. I wonder if the one factor that we couldn't really take into account when it came to to scouting and evaluating Harris was what he is going to take when it isn't gigantic. Doesn't take it. It neither takes a, a, a hall of fame running back nor the most astute scout in the NFL to see a player running through a five yard wide hole. 
they're going to see that on the field. It, 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 you think it's clear on tape. You should see it up front. You, it, it's clear. It's weird. It's like they only have two guys on the field. There's nobody there. He's not going to miss those. My question is twofold, really. One, what he is seeing, and it, it's there. There's some there. I'm not saying that he's going to run for 150 every game, but there is some there. There's some light for him there. Is he not seeing that and regarding it as an opportunity? Or does he see it and he doesn't have the confidence in his injured foot to get to it? Or maybe add to the third part, is he not physically able to get to it? Any one of these things, to me, leads to the fact that an undrafted rookie by the name of Jalen Warren is outplaying the former first-round pick, 22nd pick overall, from a year prior. Should that be happening? In an average situation, that that doesn't happen. Um, Is it happening? Yeah, we really can't ignore this any longer. How much is this going to affect the Steelers' game plan moving forward? That's the question. How much should it? How much is it going to? The one thing that I have liked... the one thing I have enjoyed about the development process is seeing what, a, 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 seeing what a team is going to do to coach a player up in the way that they see them um, able to uh, extract from a player. And one thing that me in my, my amateur analysis, I'm not at all suggesting that I am um, that I am an expert in any way, shape or form. What I am saying, though, is overall, I did not see Najee Harris as a a very good pass receiver at the NFL level. I didn't think we would see what we are seeing from him right now, and I, I think it's been pretty good. I've enjoyed seeing his development in that regard, and that maybe is the reason they stay on the field. Maybe that's what's uh, keeping him on the field. I'm not I'm not opposed to that. I don't think that's bad. I think he adds an element to it, and you need to be able to run the guy in the backfield if you want to have him split out, uh, uh, option out, anything like that um, in, in, in passing situations. You need to be able to show that he can be on the field to run or receive. We should like what we're seeing as Najee, the receiver, but that only brings up more of what my concern with Najee Harris is in the fact that if – he is able to run routes, get himself open. He's not a, a game-breaking guy anyway. If he can run a decent route, catch the ball, get his hips upfield, you're, you're happy with that. He's not going to break somebody's ankles and go for 30 yards. It just it, it won't happen. But if what you're getting out of Harris is enough in the passing game, okay, keep him on the field. But more to the point, why is he not able to see stuff that's right in front of him when he's carrying the ball? We've gotten so used to how just bashing the offensive line, constantly berating it as a unit, saying that it can't do this, it can't do that. The offensive line isn't great. It's not going to be great, okay? They're looking up at average. They can get to average. You're going to be fairly happy with them. As a unit, that's a great job by the coaching staff to get that group from what we saw to average. I think that's their goal. They're not going to tell you that, but that's their goal. They're not the problem. 
Najee Harris contributes to the run game. I know that seems strange and all, but the running back is actually a skill. There, there are things that they have to do uh, in, in order to make the run game succeed. It's not just the offensive line blocking guys. If it was, running backs wouldn't be consistent in their output week in and week out. Najee Harris can make the offensive line better. The line can make Najee Harris better, but Harris can make the line better. Right now, he's not doing it. And the biggest piece of evidence that I have in making that argument is the fact that Jalen Warren does. Okay? Jalen Warren's not going to rush for 150 yards with this unit, with what they have. That's not going to happen. But why is it that that Jalen Warren has the 10-plus yard carry every week? And Jalen Warren has the bigger play the biggest play that was made by a running back in that game is almost always uh, Jalen Warren. Harris does not run like that. It's just not happening. More of the issue is on Harris than the offensive line right now. That brings us into, though, the overall direction of where this offense is going. And this is when the teeth start to get gnashed. When we are discussing the offensive direction, um, It doesn't end with Matt Canada, but Matt Canada is a large part of this. If anybody cares, breaking news here on the New Standard podcast. The Steelers have signed cornerback Duke Dawson to the practice squad and released running back Jason Huntley from the practice squad. I legit don't know who either of those people are, so I don't think they're going to contribute a whole lot except for the fact that their secondary is pretty banged up and it might be... um, a, a, a body very much like um, I'm choking. I don't even remember his name. Josh Johnson, Josh Jackson, uh, number 16, who was on the field against Josh Allen in the Bills defense in the third quarter last week. That was nice. Um, secondary for the Steelers is banged up. We're going to get into uh, injuries here in a bit. But um, yes, to, to round the point off, you have an offensive coordinator. Yeah, he was the second round pick. Thank you, Luke. Um, Lance, if you're listening, I've already texted you. Could you please get Luke the link? Because I asked you to do that before. It would be great if, if that could happen. We're trying to get him on the show. Um, we'll discuss me emailing our guest next week and what address I'm sending what to. Where we are uh, as far as the offensive direction for the Steelers, uh, with Matt Canada in charge, there was a... a one thing I want to point out is I don't even know if this is especially common around the league. It would make sense if bad offenses um, do this consistently. But one thing I've noticed in all five games the Steelers have played, and they've lost four of five, and I don't think they should have won any of them. Well, maybe they should have beat the Jets, but they shouldn't have, They shouldn't have won against the Bengals. So it evens out. Call them one and four. They have at least – two consecutive three and outs at some point in the game. It doesn't happen on script. When I say on script, what that means is teams typically uh, script their first 12 to 15 plays in open situations, um, meaning they're going to run these plays pretty much regardless of uh, down and distance. Uh, Goal line situations might change, but by and large, these are the plays that they've practiced. These are the plays they want to run and they're going to set up everything else that they do during a game off of those things. That's your your cliche adjustment. Um, <clears throat> the Steelers have run scripts pretty well, but they 
aren't developing anything off of that. And that's where the three and outs are really coming in. That's that's a drain, obviously. You know, the Bills had two three and outs last week, their final two possessions, and they knelt the ball out on one of them. So really shouldn't even count as a three and out. That's a team that their fans now boo when they punt. Okay. The Steelers couldn't possibly be further away from the Bills in, in terms of their offense. They're not the Bills. They're not going to be the Bills. Matt Canada was not going to make this offense the Bills. Okay. Again, they're looking up at average. I, I really think that the the value for them is to improve a little bit each and every game. I think they have the ability to do that. But they don't have a great opportunity to do that this week, considering Todd Bowles, one of the best defensive minds of the game, runs a very good defensive team in Tampa Bay, if not statistically right now, although that's not true. They do it in execution. They do it in schematic um, uh, development. They have pieces together each week to suck, suffocate an offense. And for the Bucks at three and two, for a defense that's playing really well and needs to give their offense uh, some snaps, the opportunity to get right. That's really, to me, what this is for the Bucs. It's a get-right game. Their defense is probably on the exact same level uh, as the Bills are in terms of what their potential is, especially against an offense like that. To discuss the Bucs more, I've got Bucks Wire editor and Draft Wire editor, the esteemed Luke Easterling, joining the show. Durham Bulls, as always, represented. Always, always. Podcast. Looks like you're fresh off a recording of that. How you doing, Luke? I I have a million dollar arm and a five cent head, Neil. So that's why I'm here. It's a it's a good place to be. I don't have either of those. Lesser value in talent here, my friend. Not me. Um, bucks though, huh? It's uh, it's one thing to discuss with you the the legacy of Tom Brady. I'm sure that you have answered a question or two. I know you've even been. In the presence of Tom Brady, you have been around Tom Brady. You, you have absorbed his aura to some degree. Can I ask you this though? When you got near him, were you flagged for passing for roughing the passer? I was warned ahead of time that there would be, you know, kind of a general um, halo, if you will, to use the punt return. Um, you know, that anytime if there was like a, I don't know, a, perhaps a breath that was too strong that emanated from me uh, in his general direction that I could be flagged for for roughing the passer. Yes. So I've, um, among many other reasons, have kept my distance from the goat um, because, yeah, I just I don't want to cost my team 15 yards and a win. You know, <laughs> if you are not aware uh, top to bottom of what we are referring to, there was a fairly, uh, to put it mildly, controversial uh, roughing the passer call against the Atlanta Falcons that uh, greatly helped the Bucks in their victory this past week. And there is a certain reasonably fair, reasonably unfair uh, uh, notion among fans of the NFL that Tom Brady uh, gets these calls all the time. But to be a thousand percent honest with you, it's really hard to review that play and not think that that's not the case. Um, it was it was laughable in my mind more than anything else. But I, I want to talk about Brady a little bit. Um, in Pittsburgh, his numbers make him look like friggin' Montana in the eighties, but it, it's, it's not, 
it's not a Brady like season to this point, is it? Do do you feel that he's on track for what we would normally expect from from him? No, and and I say that having just seen that he's like number three in passing yards and was really surprised by that, to be honest. I know he's had a couple of big games the last couple of games and a lot of that, you know, some of the garbage time stuff against Kansas City. I guess it does rack up uh, a la John Kitna in like 2008 or whatever it was where he threw for like 5,000 yards for for the Lions. But no, I, I think that obviously this is still a team that's trying to find a way to play four quarters on both sides of the ball. They had great defense those first two even three weeks after those first couple drives against uh, against Green Bay, the Green Bay game kind of felt like some of their games last year, right? Where the defense gives up a touchdown or two and about to be a third one. And they somebody makes a play right at the last second. It was the sack fumble in 2020 against the Chiefs that stopped the bleeding there and got them a chance yep. to win. That play happened in the Packers game, too. It was 14 nothing or, or something like that. And the Packers are about to go in and make it 21 and Vita Vea, who drops into zone coverage, because that's something he can do at 340 pounds for some reason. <laughs> that's normal. Um, people like him are the reason I quit playing. It's just not fair. <laughs> um, so he forces that fumble. If that if that doesn't happen, that's not a 14 to 12 game, right? That's that that blows the game open at that point. So the defense has played well for most of the season, and then against Kansas City, it was just I, I mean they were behind from the beginning. So in terms of complementary football, it's been a weird year so far for Brady because while the defense was dominating, the offense was having all the injuries and, and clearly clearly dealing with the fact that all three of those interior guys on the offensive line are brand new, right? So you got Shaq Mason at right guard, who's the most experienced guy, and he played mm-hmm. with Brady in New England, but he's new to this system. He's new to playing next to Wirfs and, and other guys that you know where the communication kind of has to start from ground zero. And then the other two guys, your center and your left guard, no NFL starts before this season. So you've got you got Robert Hainsey at center, who's taken over for for Ryan Jensen, the Pro Bowl center, who got hurt on the second day of training camp, and then you got Luke uh, Gedeke, the second round pick, out who played right tackle at Central Michigan, and now he's playing left guard week one as a rookie in front of Tom Brady. So, you know, some growing pains to be expected there, but I think that's where the dysfunction of the offense starts there, and then it moves out to receiver where they've had. Julio Jones injured. They've had Chris Godwin injured. They've had Mike Evans suspended for a game. You know, they've had other guys trying to contribute. Brashad Perriman and, and Scotty Miller, bottom bottom of the roster type guys, trying to be starters for this offense. And it's just the offense still hasn't figured things out because they haven't been completely healthy. And when they have been, they've had guys in that just don't have a, a chemistry or report. Russell Gage, $10 million a year, but he's, at a, he's got a hamstring injury all through training camp. Misses all those reps with Brady and and no chance to develop chemistry and trust in that receiver. So you see him kind of just now starting to pick things up. Um, I mean, to get back to your original question, no, it hasn't been a normal year from Brady for all of those reasons. Um, but, you know, you, you just there, there are flashes. There are moments where you see like, OK, this is what this offense is capable of. This is the Tom Brady we're used to seeing. And I think as they continue to get healthier and build that chemistry, it's really similar to what it looked like in 2020, right? When he first signed, there were flashes of it early on. But again, this was a seven and five team that year before they got hot and, and won eight straight and won the Super Bowl. So it feels very much like that early 2020 team where they're still trying to figure things out. And he's trying to figure out how to maximize the talent with all those moving parts right now. Yeah, the the, the main thing that stood out to me and tell me if uh, this is off base, but I think the Bucks are are a great example right now of, really kind of a, a declining trend of big plays 
with the exception of any time the Steelers go to Orchard Park, New York, uh, around the league. Um, in, in offenses don't seem to be uh, as as dominant as they have been. Now, I, I wonder if that's not defensive dominance kind of taking over or it's more schematic. We're just not going to let you beat us with big plays. We're going to make you go the long way down the field. <clears throat> and Brady and the Bucks are certainly doing that. Hence the numbers that Brady has, but they're not, it's not resounding in points again, anywhere outside of Orchard Park, New York in, right. <laughs> in early October. It, it's, it, I, I wonder if that's not a, a byproduct here. Um, Brady kind of seems to be hinting at that. It, maybe it's just me, but I, I could be taking his quotes out of, out of context, but it's not that they're not playing good football. There's definitely some bad football that's out there. And I think early on in the season, you see a good chunk of that. But right. the big plays are not there to be made. We're seeing Devontae Adams um, making highlights now, shoving photographers more than making plays down the field. And it, it, that kind of seems to be the case everywhere. Rodgers is having all kinds of problems in Green Bay. They're not a dominant offense anymore. Do, do you see any of this in Tampa Bay? Do you think that that's, that's something that, that's you know a microcosm in the rest of the league? Yeah, yeah, I do see it. And honestly, the the two big plays that the Bucks could have had Sunday were probably best. <laughs> your best shot was to get pass interference called against Scott, you know, and whoever was covering Scotty Miller because he had the DB beat. But I think honestly, we we take this back to that Super Bowl, Bucks versus the Chiefs, right? When they absolutely dominated Patrick Mahomes, and they did it with a fairly simple game plan, which was we know your offensive line sucks because everybody's hurt and everybody's playing a different position. We think our pass rush is going to eat you alive, so we're just going to rush four and have Devin White follow, you know, uh, follow Patrick Mahomes wherever he goes. We're going to have Levante David follow Travis Kelsey wherever he goes. We're going to keep two high safeties all day long and make you beat us underneath and not give away any of those big plays that they gave away earlier in the season. So I think that being the last game of the of the NFL season and, and opposing defenses, seeing what that did to that defense – you got the whole offseason to be like, well, sweet. This is a pretty simple schematic to try to take away some of these big play offenses. Fast forward to last playoffs. What was it that stopped Mahomes and the Chiefs again against Cincinnati? Yep. Yep. Not necessarily a lot of too high stuff, but a lot of quarters, a lot of yeah. you are going to have to. We're rushing three, and you're going to have to beat us some other way than getting one-on-one, than beating the only deep safety with these post corners and these double moves to get Tyreek loose. They're just not allowing that stuff because so many guys are covering deep now. So, yeah, I do think that's Exactly what the Bills didn't do against the Chiefs. Yeah, yeah, I think think it is. I think it is schematic. Teams are just saying, listen, you're going to have to drive the field. More plays, more snaps means more opportunities for you to make a mistake and me to take advantage of it. Um, and obviously that, you know, putting two high safeties all the time means you're going to open up the box as well. So yeah, I think that's really what it is. Defenses are just going to keep saying, we're not going to give up the highlights. You're going to have to work for it. And now you got to understand that, uh, the, the trend that we're speaking of has no connection at all to Pittsburgh because nobody thinks Pittsburgh is able, willing in, in any way to throw the ball deep. Maybe that changes. I don't know. But um, one thing I know the Steelers continuously try to do with little to no success is run the football. And that, to me, is kind of where the Bucks come in here. Um, you might not be aware of this, but there might not be another player per game who's had more rushing success against the Steelers than Leonard Fournette. 
three games, all with the Jaguars, and they won two of these three games, including a playoff game at the end of the 2017 season. Fournette, in those three games, 81 carries, 385 yards, and six touchdowns. He had 139 yards from scrimmage in the score against Atlanta. A lot of that came in the air. Caught 10 of 11 passes, though. Do you think, knowing that and where the Bucs are going and what they're doing, do you feel Fournette is going to be a, a key part of this game plan? Yeah, anytime you lead your team in rushing and receiving in a game, you're you're obviously uh, the, the focal point. Um, like Ricky again, Waters is back. Right, right. And again, some of that is football, baby. I love it. I love it. I, some <laughs> of that was situational. I think a lot of what Lenny picked up on receiving, honestly, was on that last drive of the first half, right, where they, they got that six-point swing where Koo misses the field goal long, and the Bucks have like 20 seconds and a timeout and a couple of busted coverages, and Lenny's out of the backfield for 10-15, you know, twice. But again, this is – when Brady signed, everybody was like – in, in 2020, they're like, who's going to be James White? Who's going to be the, you know, the the out of the backfield guy? And they signed some guys to make that happen. Gio Bernard was one of those guys last year. Lenny was just like, nah, I'm going to do it last year. That's that he he proved he's like, I'm going to be that guy. The Bucks didn't like the wear and tear on him because late in the year you start to break down if you're a running back who's just on the field all the time. And so they spent a third round pick on Rashad White out of Arizona State. Uh, literally a you are really good at catching the ball and and protecting the passer. He's a really good runner, too. But they drafted him to be that James White guy. We want to not have Leonard Fournette on the field for 85 percent of the snaps, which he was in week one. And if you look at the end of the Chiefs game, it was Rashad White almost exclusively in the second half because the Bucks are down big. Um, so game script has a lot to do with it. But. They drafted Rashad White to take some of that pressure off of Lenny, but he's still a very huge part of this offense because, again, it's all about trust. What Who does Tom Brady trust when the game is on the line? That's what you're seeing when they make decisions at wide receiver, too. Who's inactive? Who is he going to with the game on the line? That stuff matters during practice. It matters in the games. If he doesn't trust you to make that catch, he's going to run instead of throwing you the ball, even at his age. He just doesn't. He's not going to mess around about that. So the fact that Leonard Fournette continues to get the ball continues to get that many targets in the passing game is because a, like you said, like we said before, it's partly what defenses are giving you when everybody's deep and it's all quarters, check the ball down. And, and it's basically an extended run play with a four yard head start and a lot more space to work with. Right. So Lenny moving downhill with the ball in his hands, you got a better shot of getting an extra five or six yards with, with that than anything else. So I don't expect him to be any less, a part of the game plan moving forward. I think the only thing that will change is that as much as they can, the Bucks will want to involve Rashad White more and more, if only to keep Lenny fresh for the playoffs. Either way, um, either one of them averaging less than four and a half yards carry against this defense will be a, a big upset in my mind. Um, <clears throat> my audience is not going to enjoy this, but there's no way objectively I can avoid this. The tale of two Devons. Two linebackers named Devin. 2019, Tampa Bay Buccaneers select Devin White. I'm not exactly sure people expected him to go that high. Regardless, though, he did. The best opportunity the Steelers have to get the inside linebacker that they absolutely need, the pedigree guy that they had that they were not able to replace when Ryan Chazier was, was tragically paralyzed on the field was going to be Michigan's Devin Bush. They found an opportunity to trade up to number 10 overall. 
with the Denver Broncos, gave up some capital in order to do that. They hoped to solidify their inside linebacker position for years to come. To this day, Luke, Devin Bush has never been the best inside linebacker on his own team. Did you know that they take him off the field and dime now for something called Robert Spillane? I I didn't. An undrafted Mac linebacker plays over Devin Bush in coverage downs for the Steelers. I just thought you should know that. Um, As far as the defense goes, Devin White is kind of a polarizing player. It's sort of different, but this really is sort of a modern NFL. We really are in the era of uh, defensive playmakers kind of ruling everything. Might not be a great player game, like snap to snap, the way that we're used to a Mike or an inside linebacker being very consistent throughout the course of a game. White isn't like that, is he? White is White's a playmaker, though. White will win you a game. He might not lose it for you, but he's not necessarily going to be similar play to play. But when the chips are down, he steps up and plays. I, I worry about him probably more than anybody else in that defense. Yeah, I think, you know, he's kind of the polar opposite of a guy like Luke Keekley, maybe, you know, where, yeah, he made his splash plays, but there was a there was a floor to his game that was very high. You know, you weren't going to see a lot of mistakes. You weren't going to see him out of position a lot. Um, all respect to Luke Keekley, he has never dreamed of being the same kind of athlete that yeah. Devin White is and few few linebackers that we've really ever seen. And I think, you know, obviously being a draft guy, going back to the combine, when, when Devin White had the combine he had, number 10 felt low, you know, even though that was kind of the range where I start to be comfortable taking an inside linebacker in a draft, right? But, you know, I, I – figured out pretty early on that he was the Bucks guy at five. And if he was there, it was going to be, he was going to be the pick. Um, I had to get comfortable with that. I, I still really wasn't thrilled. I wanted a pass rusher. I wanted somebody at a more premium position, but in terms of the impact he's had on this defense, <clears throat> you know, it, it is a very high risk, high reward. It's, you know, splash plays. And when he's rushing the passer, he's getting after the passer. He he can have multi-sack games anytime because of, again, if, if you're, a quarterback sitting in the pocket and a delayed blitz comes from a guy who's six foot 245, 240, and runs four three. I mean, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. And so that is such a weapon on defense. And again, that athleticism and coverage can be useful. But I mean, we're we're talking about a guy who's, you know, about to come up for a new contract and he's still making the same kind of mistakes in terms of the the over aggressiveness. Uh, the inconsistency in coverage and overrunning plays and and getting lost in in assignments sometimes that you're just like man year four really shouldn't be dealing with this you know it's 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 not a question of what he's capable of or what he is as a leader as a presence in that locker room again he was voted a captain going into his second season uh, and has remained so since then so he's he's a, a, a an invaluable presence in that defense I think for Bucks fans again you said he was kind of polarizing he's polarizing within the Bucks fan base because there are still a lot of fans that are still very frustrated that he hasn't taken that next step in terms of that consistency year after year after year. There's not enough improvement in terms of that floor that I talked about with Keekley. You know, you can have a game where Devin White has 13 tackles and two sacks and a pick six. And then the very next week he misses eight tackles and is overrunning plays and is lost in coverage. And those things happen fairly equally. And it's still, you know, again, it is a frustrating thing to see. You just, 
you'd still rather have that than whatever the Steelers are dealing with with uh, with Devin Bush. But but there's still some progression there that I think Bucks fans want to see. Yeah, if if Bucks fans want to propose a trade, even swap between the two, I'd, I'd be for that. Um, our colleague Doug Farrar, your co-host on the the Fourth Down Territory podcast, check that out. By the way, uh, people, it's it two great football minds getting together, hashing out kind of the news of the day. Uh, it's a great bit. We're very excited to have it. Um, I had this conversation. Somebody brought up the name Vic Fangio in the comments and going off the defensive theme that we have here. I, I think Fangio has a, a, a very um, understated but broad impact on all of the NFL right now because a lot of what teams are doing is, is very Fangio-like. And along with that, though, um, and Devin White plays into this, I swear, Demeco Ryans in San Francisco, the stuff that he is doing in terms of coverage is revolutionary. And you're seeing San Francisco as, as one of the top defensive units in the game. And they're not doing it with star power per se, but it's total chaos. It's confusion. It's, it seems to me Todd Bowles is paying attention to a lot of that. I, I, it, it seems to me like Devin White is being used deliberately as kind of a boom or bust type of guy. Go make the play because the reality is we can't stop the the wide receiver quarterback combination in the NFL. We can't even tackle the quarterback without paying price for it. Right. What do we need to do to confuse this? It really seems like Bowles has a good sense of that and has. And I think that's a big part of why uh, Tampa Bay has had as much success as it has against Green Bay. And I think that that plays into what Ryan's is doing in San Francisco, what Fangio was doing uh, with Chicago and with Denver in the time that he had there. Where where is Tampa Bay in in terms of like evolution uh, on on defensive football? Where where do you think Bowles ranks among those kinds of coaches? I think him in individually as a defensive mind, I'd I'd put him up there with the best of them. I think he's probably a top five defensive mind in terms of what he can call and and what he designs and and you can just listen to the players talk about it all week. You know, in terms of the preparation, I remember. Jamel Dean, the Bucks corner, his rookie season, the big jump that he took really about mid to late season. And he talked so much about even playing at Auburn, even playing at a top, you know, SEC program, not understanding how to watch film until he got to Todd Bowles and just spending extra time every day with Todd Bowles, breaking down film and learning tendencies and stuff. So they, they speak volumes about what he does to prepare them on a week in and week out basis. I think, again, one of the biggest problems that that his defense has is it can't stay healthy long enough to maximize all of the things that he wants to do and all the things he's capable of scheming up for them. Because after a week and a half, Akeem Hicks has a, a Liz Frank injury. And so he's out. So now the rush defense is, is going to suffer because the only guys you can replace him with are Raheem Nunez Rochez, who we call Nacho, by the way, one of the greatest nicknames in the league that nobody really knows, um, and Logan Hall, who, who's a Logan Hall, who's a rookie pass rusher right now. So you take out the 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 second nose tackle you signed, and you're replacing him with guys that are really pass rush specialists. So, and then you look at corner DB at the end of the at the end of the last game uh, against the Falcons, you lose Carlton Davis, your top corner. You lose Sean Murphy Bunting, the guy who replaced him, and you lose Mike Edwards on on the next to last drive there's only so much you can scheme up when you take out guys that have been in your defense for three or four years and replace them with Zion McCollum, a rookie fifth round pick out of Sam Houston state, who's been injured all training camp. 
So, you know, this happens on offense too. We talked about it with Brady. Some of the reason that the offense looks disjointed when those guys get hurt isn't just because the talent level goes down and you don't have Mike Evans on the field. You have Brashad Perriman or Scotty Miller or Jalen Darden instead. It's not just about talent. It's about what those guys are capable of based on what you were able to install during the week or during training camp. And if they don't know how to execute X, Y, and Z, you're not going to be able to call it. So you've got to call things differently based on the personnel that's in there. So I think that the reason this defense has been inconsistent at times has nothing to do with bowls as much as it has to do with having the whole team healthy enough to execute. Honestly, I think one of the most complex, aggressive, creative defensive schemes in the game. And I think, again, you can point to specific times, specific games, specific stretches, where again, this team in that Super Bowl run goes on the road three weeks in a row. And then to, to end the season, they beat they beat Drew Brees on the road. They beat Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. They beat Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. That's what this defense is capable of because of what Bowles can call. It just It's hard to be consistent when guys are coming in and out and you're dealing with a lot of inexperience. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. Injuries being a, a key component to any successful team and one that we don't often – analyze um mostly because there's nothing really to analyze i mean you either got right. the guy in the field and everybody has to deal with it right there's yeah. no excuse like you gotta you gotta get nope. the job done but that's, to that's ignore the, thing. the fact I mean, that it actually has an impact is right. silly as well that's the thing it, it's not an excuse it, it's a reality if you don't i mean the, the the steelers and i'm not whining it's just this is the problem with this it, it's made out to be like it's an excuse but there's no excuse being given when you break down a bunch of reasons why a team sucks just when you say that, you know, the guy making $27 million this year, the reigning defensive player of the year isn't on the field. All I get from people is this is the league's highest paid defense. Well, not when 23% of it is on injured reserve. It's not. It's right. one of the lowest. This, in this fact. 11 players is not that. <laughs> yeah. And it, that that gets, I'm trying to tie this back into the, the, the playmaking aspect of defense today. It really is right. an offensive mindset. Uh, put onto the field. And when you have these kinds of guys, they need to be out on the field making plays. And if they're not, what else do you have? You have 38 to three. You have, you know, Steelers didn't have Terrell Edmonds on the field. And look what Trey Norwood did in the third snap of the game. That was honestly, they must really like Trey Edmonds because, or uh, Trey, uh, 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 Trey Norwood, because in all honesty, that was a cuttable offense that was so bad just a, a horrendously poor read a, a lack of situational awareness huge mistake for the Steelers and it went downhill from there obviously I didn't expect them to win the game but you can't be giving up 98 yard touchdown passes on third and 10 because you blew coverage you had no idea what was behind you just a huge huge mistake but things like that affect defense more because when you use Minka Fitzpatrick understandably to spy you know, the, the alien Josh Allen, because who else is going to do it? Devin Bush? No, no, that's that's not that's not good. You need Minka to come down. You have to know there's nobody over the top and there's no reason you can't cover a post in, in man. Why are you letting him go? It, it's a horrendous, horrendous play. I don't know if you were <laughs> that was that was Georgia that in overtime against Alabama in the national championship after that. Sack. Yeah. And that's and that's a college. No awareness. I mean, it, it, Oh, frustrating. I really like Trey Norwood, but I don't know if he recovers from that. It was so bad. Um, let me switch gears a little bit. Tristan Wirfs is a guy you, you obviously notice on uh, among the Bucks' offense. 
this is going to be seen as sacrilegious, certainly coming uh, from within an audience that gets to watch Dan Moore perform on a, a, a week-to-week basis. I don't know how sold I am on the necessity of having a premium left tackle because I'm not 100% sure the left tackle has the same stigma that it does. What's interesting to me, Luke, you, you look at it top to bottom, and Worfs is certainly going to be in this group. I'm in no way discussing him yet as, as a player. He's a high-end dude. There's no doubt. The top of market pay-wise for left tackles and right tackles is very simple. It's very similar. Top, I think it's like five or six guys are paid roughly on the same level. The tail from that for the left tackle is a lot longer than it is for the right tackle. <clears throat> I bring this up partially because what I see from Steelers' right tackle, Chooks Okorafor, is a player that's probably at that $10 million level where he's getting paid, where everyone freaked out about when, they, when the, the Steelers gave it to him. It's a market rate for a tackle. Now, they don't have a left tackle, but I don't know if I see it as a deficiency, the fact that, let me rephrase that, it, Dan Moore absolutely is a deficiency. I don't want to suggest otherwise. The fact that the Steelers have their best tackle playing on the right side for, for whatever reason, you know, we could pick five reasons why that's the case. Right. Worfs being who he is, a, a high-level dude playing left tackle, do you think, one, it matters one versus the other in the non-Lawrence Taylor era anymore because everyone's got a Lawrence Taylor on their team now? Does it really matter to protect the, the, the cliche blindside piece of it or is Worfs just, you know, as, as a left tackle, is he providing as much value on that side as he would be on the right side? Do you think there's a difference between those two? Well, again, the, what you mentioned about the going rate, right, for left tackle or right tackle, that that came into play. That came into play for the Bucks when Donovan Smith, the left tackle, came up for his extension, right? This is three or four years ago. And Donovan Smith up to that point had, been very inconsistent you know was a guy that when the Bucks drafted him at the top of the second round I was not happy about it I saw him as a as a guard probably at the next level and had him you know third or fourth round and we could get into the difference between you know you and I've had that conversation a million times uh where those boards don't match up and it doesn't matter but you know the Bucks took him at 34 I think 33 or 34 that year uh and made him their left tackle day one Donovan Smith day one starter with Jameis Winston that class that came in and he has been very inconsistent for most of his career. He's had some solid games. He's had some really bad games and bad moments. But what he has been is available and durable. Because mm-hmm. earlier this year, when Donovan Smith in week one uh, had the the, hel- the elbow um, hyperextension, got that weird awkward hit in week one, the next week he missed his third career start since 2014. Uh, or 2015 as a second round pick. So he started every game except for three or except for two going into week two of this season. So that's seven, eight years of, of quality play. So a couple of years prior when the Bucks gave him a three-year extension at 14 million a year, Bucks fans who had, who had watched him for all that time were like, are you, are you out of your minds? You're giving $14 million a year to this offensive tackle who, you know, kind of like Devin white, right at his best, he'll make some plays, but, at his worst, your, your quarterback's going to die. So like, it's that guy, you're going to give him 14. And I tried to explain to Bucks fans, like in this, in this year, this time right now, that is how much it costs for a left tackle 
who can yep. start every game and give you any reasonable amount of success. So a guy with that many consecutive starts without missing one and giving you a even mediocre level of play, that's what it costs for a left tackle in the NFL. It's $14 million a year. That's the price for mm-hmm. that. And if you don't want to pay it, you are willingly asking for worse than that. It brings so, up an interesting point. Steelers are a team that does not want to pay $14 million. They, in other words, top of market. They won't pay it. Two-part question for you, and I, I apologize. This topic went way longer than I wanted it to. Great stuff on your part. Terrible question on my part. Are the Bucks fundamentally better? Are they more capable because they have a top-of-market tackle? Would they be similar in your eyes if they had – let's agree, Tristan Wirfs is probably one of the three best tackles in the game. Right. Fair? Yes. If they had the 12th best tackle in the game, would they be as good an offense? Probably. Probably because I think what you're what you're seeing Brady be able to accomplish with all the moving parts in the interior that we said, right? Rookie first, you know, rookie second round pick who played right tackle at Central Michigan. Now he's your left guard. Robert Hainsey, who was supposed to be the backup in his second year until Ryan Jensen goes down. Now he's your starter week one. Shaq Mason, a veteran guy who's never played with this group. Injuries once again. And Brady is still, for the most part, throwing the ball pretty well when his receivers are healthy and, and he's going to get rid of the ball. So I think Brady, it's kind of not fair with Brady because he's one of the, you know, when you talk about quarterbacks that are able to deal with adversity in terms of personnel and, and get your team into a the right play or the right situation and deal with it. I don't know if there's anybody better than Brady in having dealt with that partly because you look at some of the supporting casts he's worked with in New England, and it's a lot of no-name guys that he's won Super Bowls with regardless of position on offense. So I don't know that it makes that big of a difference. What I'm interested to see is how the Bucks value Tristan Wirfs when his deal comes up and compared to whatever they're going to have to do at left tackle because his deal at right tackle is going to come up about when Donovan Smith at left tackle is going to have to figure something out too. So are they going to pay Tristan Wirfs a bunch of money, keep him at right tackle, pay him a bunch of money and move him to the left side and do something else at right tackle or try to keep Donovan Smith on a cheaper deal because he'll be, you know, 30 years old or whatever and how they manage that. I'm interested to see. I don't know that it matters because right now I think they're about 45 million over the cap next year. So we'll see how that goes. Um, But no, I think that, like you said, if if you don't want to pay that money, there's, I think every position has a sweet spot, right? Where you're always in and good front offices, good general managers are always trying to toe that line between where do I spend my money where I have to, to keep superstar players that are absolutely key to our success. And where can I try to use our, our personnel department, use our pro scouts and college scouts to find guys who can get the job done much cheaper than that and make, you know, have that all balance out to, to create a winning team. That's, that's, all front offices are trying to do 12 months out of the year. So I think the Bucks in particular could have success with a lesser right tackle and maybe even a lesser left tackle because they have the goat at quarterback. But I don't know if that applies to a lot of other teams. Just to uh, round this off, um, you as the editor of DraftWire and Steelers fans certainly are going to be paying attention more and more to the draft a bit earlier uh, than they usually do. You sent missing his name, of course, Paris Johnson of Ohio State to the Steelers mm-hmm. in your most recent mock draft. That's that's a big part of the reason why I ask. Dan Moore, obviously, is a problem for the Steelers, and it, it, uh, he's a player, I would imagine, 
uh, the Bucks are looking to exploit quite a bit, uh, the same way Von Miller did in the Bills. Um, coming into this, the Steelers clearly need an upgrade at tackle. The Steelers are also a team, I don't know if you're aware of this, has not drafted a tackle in the first round since 1996. Yep. Uh, Jermaine Stevens, a player that would also probably rank fairly high on the Steelers' biggest draft misses in franchise history. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. But um, as far as Sunday is concerned, um, what do you expect? Give me your give me your score prediction, and give me an indication of Brady's stat line in a Steelers upset victory. What what do you think that would look like? You know, I think that. Um... One of the things that concerns me the most about the way the Bucks have played, particularly over the last two weeks, is they've given up 150 on the ground in each of those games. Five yards a carry in each of those games, despite having, again, since Todd Bowles came here uh, in 2019, one of the best rushing defenses in the NFL year in and year out. Akeem Hicks out of the lineup, they've, and no Indomitian Sue, again, they kind of replaced him with Hicks in the offseason. A rushing defense giving up a buck 50 a week is not good. Again, maybe the Steelers, everybody wants to talk about how the Steelers are the recipe to cure everybody's ills this week, right? So maybe that's maybe that helps. Maybe that helps going against a, a team that hasn't been able to run the ball as well as they want to. Uh, but it, it, it concerns me. Um, it concerns me that when the Bucks play rookie quarterbacks and new quarterbacks that maybe they weren't expecting to, they don't play well sometimes. Uh, they've given up some really bad performances to m- – <laughs> really mediocre quarterbacks, even under the, the current management. Again, Todd Bowles going back to, to Bruce Arians when Bowles was the defensive coordinator for the last few years. They have played down to their competition too often, and not as much as they used to, but it's still concerning to me to go on the road, to play in a place like Pittsburgh where the crowd's going to be great. Um, they're still going to have you know talent enough to give you trouble. Again, this is a team that has struggled against really bad teams, especially in the first half. So I couldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if this game was close early and then the Bucks, like you would see, you know, Alabama or Georgia against a, a team that maybe they should have beaten better. Things things grow apart in, in the third and fourth quarter, and the Bucks kind of pull away for a, a, a multi-score victory. That's kind of how I see this going. But if 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 they don't win this game, I think the person who will be most responsible for that is Minka Fitzpatrick. Uh, and the reason I say that is because when Tom Brady has struggled, when he has had games where he doesn't play well. It's when there's interior pressure. So you've got Cameron Hayward to thank for that, assuming he's healthy. Um, and so it's also because there's always been a safety, uh, some sort of defensive weapon on the back end who lines up all over the place. Tyron Matthew, both of the safeties in New Orleans have given them trouble. Jalen Ramsey, who's a corner, but they move him around in that kind of money backer kind of situation. They move him all around the defense in Los Angeles as well. Minka Fitzpatrick is that type of safety who you can just kind of unleash on a guy like Brady and say, just, just go find his eyes, find the ball and go, go ruin his life for four quarters, please. And he will do it and he can do it. Um, So that's, that's kind of what I think. I I think if, if, if Brady doesn't have a, a, a big performance, it's going to be because of of Hayward coming up the middle against again, an, an interior of an offensive line that just hasn't worked together very much. Um, they line him up on that guard, that rookie guard as much as possible, I'm sure. And because Minka Fitzpatrick can just follow Brady all over the place and try to try to stay one step ahead of where he wants to go. Uh, and, and if you get a couple turnovers out of it, sack fumble or an interception here and there, I think that's what the stat line looks like is that maybe 
maybe Brady gets some garbage time yards and tries to make up for early turnovers, but you know, a fumble here and a couple interceptions and, and that can be your game. Just to uh, let you know, you've got some work to do here on Bucks wire. Um, this just broke. Uh-oh. I'm sure you're, I'm sure you're looking at it. Tom Brady and four-time major tennis champion Kim Kleisters uh, yes. were announced Wednesday as part of an ownership group for a major league pickleball pickleball baby team. Um, you know, pickleball is a big thing at the health club I go to. I don't, I don't get it. it it's okay. Um, is there money in that? I mean, the, the best note, the best note I saw on this is from my good friend Greg Allman, who writes for the Athletic, and he said that. Brady's probably just excited to be involved in a sport where he's so much younger than everyone else. <laughs> the demographic is um, so uh, that that makes he gets sense. to be the young guy again, <laughs> right? Exactly. He's no, twenty I... years ago, and I can't blame him there. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's any money in it, but uh, he probably sees some if he's getting involved. Uh, I don't think he would do so otherwise. So we'll see. I appreciate it, Luke. Did you give us a score? Um, let's see. I'll go, I'll go 33 to 16 Tampa Bay. Jeez. That's a lot more. I thought it was going to be, I honestly, I, I see this being a little bit closer for the reasons that you mentioned. I think it is a get right game. Um, I think more than anything, the, the, the bucks are going to want to focus on execution, doing the right things and they have an advantage on the ground. Um, they're, they're going to be able to move it a bit. You want to stay away from Cam Hayward against those guards, like you mentioned. But yep. for for the most part, they should be able to control things up front. I don't think they're going to be as explosive as what we saw with the Bills. Um, I'm thinking something closer to like 24, 16 bucks, uh, maybe 20, considering it's in Pittsburgh. Um, but it, it, a bucks win, I think, is um, a fairly easy prediction here to make. But weird things happen in this game. You know, you protect the ball. You got to play on special teams. That's kind of the only way the Steelers are uh, able to keep um, keep their feet on the throats of their opponents. But, um, yeah, I appreciate you coming out here, Luke. Give me a bunch of time. Um, great stuff. Anybody that uh, is interested, the Bucks Wire at usatoday.com is where you can find all Luke's stuff. At Luke Easterling on Twitter. He is also the managing editor of Draft Wire, something we are – going to exploit more uh, most likely as the season um, goes on just because it doesn't look very good for Pittsburgh. Uh, but yeah, thanks for coming out, Luke. I appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. I'm really just glad the Bucks won't have Mike Glennon at quarterback this time for this trip to Pittsburgh. It's uh, <laughs> they win a little, that bit of, little bit of an improvement there. I'm excited <laughs> was, about it. That was an all-time low. That, oh my God, that game was bad. Vincent Jackson, rest in peace. What a catch. Terrible. Terrible. That was... <laughs> Just a god-awful Steelers team and game. Um, yeah, I wanted to highlight a few comments here. Uh, whatever it is that you guys have, whatever it is that uh, you would want to go over. I ran a little bit long here. I apologize. Um, no real news and notes as of now. We'll find out more uh, later on this afternoon. Feel free to uh, stay up with us on the New Standard podcast uh, on Twitter, New Standard Pod. Give us a, give us a follow there. Like and like and subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Store. Search for Lance Williams, Neil Kulong, the New Standard Podcast, whatever that happens to be, uh, for your viewing and listening pleasure. Um, yeah, you know what? I'm I'm probably just going to wrap this up here. Like I said, I went uh, way longer than Lance is going to be happy with me going. I'm sure. Um, 
Thanks to Luke Eiseling for showing up. Uh, please remember, we are going to be live pretty much immediately following uh, Sunday's game against Tampa Bay. It's a, a, a 1 p.m. Eastern time kick. Uh, we'll go on right after that with uh, commentary, thoughts, opinions, hot takes, all your guys' comments, and we'll probably be diving into um, hopefully a, a Steelers win. I'm not feeling great about it, but I don't think it's impossible either. Tampa Bay is not playing as well as you would think that they would. I like the get right uh, potential for the Bucks in this, but I don't know. I think they got beat up pretty bad. I think Mike Tomlin has their attention this week. Um, I don't know. I, I feel kind of optimistic about the Steelers' chances. Um, I'm not going to bet on that, but I don't feel too bad. Um, thanks for listening, though. Thanks for watching. My name is Neil Kulong. You have been listening to and or watching the New Standard Podcast. Tell a friend, subscribe, and remember, Lance Williams is our hero. Thanks for listening.